Zechariah 8, beginning in verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand, because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east, and from the land of the west I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing in these days the words by the mouth of the prophets, who spoke in the days of the foundation was laid, for the house of the Lord of hosts, that the temple might be built. For before these days there were no wages for man, nor any hire for beast. There was no peace from the enemy, from for whoever went out or came in. For I set all men, everyone, against his neighbor. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give its fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heaven shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these, and it shall come to pass that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Do not fear, let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent, so again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. These are the things you shall do. Speak each man the truth to his neighbor. Give judgment in your gates for truth, justice, and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. And do not love a false oath. For all these are things I hate, says the Lord. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast in the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will also go. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nations shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. We come now to Zechariah chapter 8, and to recap the context, the situation of this book of Zechariah for generations. We know that God's people were in rebellion against him. For generations, 
They did not listen to him, even as he sent prophets. He says that he rose up early and sent prophets to speak to them, prophets to warn them that judgment was coming, judgment was looming, and they did not listen. They hardened their hearts against these things. They trampled, in fact, the word of God under their foot. They did not fear God. And God eventually did precisely what he said he would, which was to bring judgment against them. The destruction of Jerusalem, all the, the temple and the whole city with it, they'd, they'd imagine that surely, surely God would not do this because he had to protect his temple. Surely he would not destroy his own temple. But yes, he brought about that judgment even still and brought his people into captivity to Babylon. And there they remain just as was prophesied for 70 years. And thankfully, thankfully, just as it was in the days of the Exodus, when God brought judgment and discipline upon the nation and, and a whole generation was there in the wilderness for 40 years, in these 70 years of judgment in Babylon, it had the desired effect. The people had been well and truly humbled. Of course there was sin. But as we see, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, you see that every time that the Lord brought something to their attention, they listened. They were teachable. They were humble. That is what the Lord asked. And when something, when, whether God's prophet or whether God's, uh, the leaders of the people brought something to their attention, they, they listened, they obeyed. And they sought to bring things both individually and corporately into greater conformity with God's word. There had been discipline, and now there was reformation. Well, what then? What are they expecting now? What happens now? In their condition of rebellion, what were they expecting? They should have. The only thing that they should have rightly expected was his judgment. They were, they were going to be opposed, you see. God was going to set himself against their every move. Everywhere they went, he was going to oppose them. Now, as people seeking, however tentatively, however imperfectly, to honor him and obey him in faith... They could and they should expect to be blessed. That's what's said in this chapter in verses 14 and 15. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Just as I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Do not fear. This is the word of the Lord to them. This is the word of the Lord to us. In what God wants to do in circumstances in which the people are teachable, in which they are listening to his word, is for them, for their hands to be strong, for them to carry out the work that he has given to them. And he wants to bless them. And he wanted them to have a supreme confidence in his ability to do the things that he said. It's funny, in their, as God rightly sought to wean them off of their self-confidence, wean them out of the doing things their own way and to destroy that, and he had. He, funny enough, they, somewhere along the line, they started getting the idea that, well, you know, we're nothing and, and God can't really help us because God, in his judgment, had sent them to Babylon and there they were against their will for these 70 years. They, they almost started getting the wrong lesson that maybe, maybe we're so small and tiny we can't do a single thing. But God wants them to understand that with his help, with his blessing, all things are possible, which is something I think that we should learn today. And so what might seem to be a strange counterpoint to the sermon this morning on humility, tonight the sermon is called God Confidence. Because I think that's what the Lord wishes for his humble and teachable people to have. Not self-confidence. And we know that 
In this day, we have such a, a mantra of that, isn't it? That we should have that um, the main thing that children should be taught is to believe they can do anything and that they're so incredibly wonderful and all that. But no, it's not self-confidence, it's God-confidence. And that's what this whole chapter is about. I, I don't intend to capture all of it, but in, in five fairly brief points, I, I hope to hit the highlights. So in this sermon called God-confidence, five points. One, there was affliction. Two, there will be blessing. Three, fear not. Four, strengthen your hands. Five, and bless the nations. There was affliction, there will be blessing. Fear not, strengthen your hands, and bless the nations. So first, there was affliction. Verse 10, for before these days there, was, there were no wages for man or any harm for beast. There was no peace from the enemy, for whoever went out or came in, I set all men, everyone, against his Neighbor, that's a pretty bad picture. Can you imagine that? You can't go in, you can't go out. Everywhere you go, you're in danger of your life. And that was a situation. It was not merely economic deprivation. That was bad enough. The people that were there in the land, they had it tough. And there wasn't hire for man or for beast. And they had to scrap a living together. And and, uh, the situation of people living to their old age was very rare. But to make it even worse, there was no peace from the enemy. There was no peace for people because he had set one against another. What a terrible thing. That was under God's judgment. And they're reminded of what it was said in Ezekiel 6, 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. Because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me, and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, and I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. This was no accident, these, this calamity, these horrible things that were happening to them. God had said he was going to do it. God was going to make good on that. Because God, again, is not someone to be trifled with. He is not like the idols of wood and stones that we can cast, we can do what we want with them. We can worship them one day and cast them in the fire the next. But God is not to be dealt with in such ways. And he was going to discipline his people. And this continued, whether for those in Babylon, by the way, the interesting thing is those who submitted to this discipline, those who, as the Puritans used to say, kissed the rod of affliction and said, we accept this. They accepted their exile. God actually blessed them. That's the point in Jeremiah, for instance, 29 and, and other parts like that, that, they, that in the peace of Babylon, the Lord even granted them peace and they, they built up their, their household and their families and so forth for the time until they returned to the land. But those who returned in the they, those who remained, it was terrible for them. And there's no sugarcoating it. That's what God said. There's the positive punishment. In verse 14, for thus says the Lord of hosts, just I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath. He determined to punish. There's a positive infliction of, of things against them. And there's also the withholding of God's blessing. And I think that that's sometimes something we forget. It's not only when God works against us, but if God withholds his blessing, there's, there's, that's a pretty bad thing as well. You know, in Psalm 127, we say it all the time. We don't even think about what, what it means. But it says, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. 
So it is not merely that he is setting himself against us, but if he does not positively bless the work of our hands, it will fall to nothing. And we need to know that. We need to understand that. Well, that was both of those components were there and we're reminded what, of, of what it says in John fifteen five that I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. But without me, you can do nothing. It's really true. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And there's all of these things were the case for the people. Well, there had been this, this affliction. There had been, of course, a great lack of blessing. But now, secondly, there will be blessing. They have repented. The Lord has brought them back. And he wants them to know now things are different. There is going to be blessing. Verse 11, but now I will not treat the remnant of his people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts. It's funny how they'd taken God for granted in the land. And now they're starting to take his discipline for granted as if that was always going to be the case. But he said, no, I'm not going to treat you that way anymore. And he goes on in verse 12, for the seed shall be prosperous. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give her increase and the heaven shall give their due. I will cause the remnant of his people to possess all these things. It's funny, these things that he's mentioning are pretty much well beyond their ability to do anything about it. We try to, we have the ability and we try, we don't always successfully try to control nature to a greater extent now, but uh, there's not much you could do back then. If the, the, the heavens did not give rain, your crops were going to fail. And if there otherwise were, were blight or if there otherwise were, were uh, insects and all the rest of it, it just was not going to work. It was beyond their control. All they could do was put the seed in and pray that the Lord would bless it. And he says, now I'm going to do that. The ground shall give her increase, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And again, this is in fulfillment of what it says, a glorious promise given to them in uh, the latter part of Isaiah. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, shall, so shall be the days of my people, and my elect shall enjoy the work of their hands." It's, by the way, a great blessing to live to old age. Our, our society, you know, just is so obsessed with the youth culture and everyone's supposed to be a permanent adolescent and, and any aspect of, of age is something to be abhorred. But actually, that's not what the Lord says. It's a great blessing for people, to, for there to be many old people among us. And, and that's what it says here, that those, they're going to be on their staff and it's going to be a great thing. It's no, it's no shame to have gray, gray hair. It's no shame to walk with a cane. Um, the Lord has sustained a people. And it is only if you go to a place that's been war-torn, where there's been terrible war, there aren't many old people. Um, because all the things that are necessary to make it into that, peace, security, food supply, medicine, all the rest of those kind of things are just not there. And we can praise God if there are old people among us, because that is what it says that it is. It's a blessing. And it says, by the way, as it shall come to pass, that just as you were a curse, this is verse 13, among the nations, O house of Judah and Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. We'll speak more about it. But it's not just that there will be a blessing upon you, but there will be so much blessing, there will be an overflow and a blessing to others as well. So there used to be affliction, but now there will be blessing. Thirdly, fear not. Fear not. Verse 13, do not fear. 
I do not intend to belabor the point, but there are wonderful words, and we should know that this is words that God gave. It's, if there's one theme that could be given to God's, as God speaks to his people as he brings them back, it's fear not. If there's a word that God gives, as the Lord Jesus Christ gives to his disciples, when they're in fear, what is it? Fear not. Without exception, when he finds his disciples trembling in, in the Gospels, the word that he says is fear not. And this is the word that the Lord gives to us. Do not fear. Now, we have to be very clear, again, what we mean by that. Well, again, in my childhood, there was these uh, awful uh, T-shirts that said, no fear. And what was meant by that is that you're godless. You're willing to trample on God's law. And other wicked people were supposed to affirm you and urge you on. And you're trampling underfoot of all morality. And to not fear to do anything reckless and, and godless. And that, in essence, was what Israel was like. That is very true. You read about it in Ezekiel in the most graphic terms imaginable of just the depth of their depravity and wickedness. And it was true of what, what is said in Psalm 36.1, an oracle within my heart concerning the transgression of the wicked. What's the oracle within David's heart? There is no fear of God before his eyes. That is the reality for wicked people. No fear of God. There ought to be a fear of God. And that should be our only fear. You know, for those people, for people that are godless, for people who have no fear of God, God's great concern, his great project for them is only one thing, and that is to put the fear of God into their hearts. Those who lack that fear, they will have that fear put into them now or later. In Jeremiah 49.5, Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord of hosts. This is looking forward to that day of judgment, looking forward to the, uh, the reality of these things. I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord of hosts. From all those who are around, even as these things began to happen in the days of Jeremiah, there were yet those who were shaking their fists and thought that they could escape to someplace safe and they wouldn't have to be subject to this discipline. They wouldn't have to subject themselves in humility. And the God, Lord says, no, I'm going to bring fear to you, no matter where you go. But for those who submit themselves, those who have kissed the rod, those who are now teachable and biddable before the Lord, what is the word for you? Do not fear. And you know, putting together what good men have said, and some of you will know these good men, fear God and fear to sin, and you will fear nothing else. Fear God, fear to sin, and you will fear nothing else. Because God himself will be your advocate, will be your ally in all good things. And you will, though the, the, the world should set itself against you. Reminded, you know, for instance, uh, we have this, this, this word against the world. It comes from Athanasius. And he was contra mundum. He was against the whole world. Because in the days back then, the church had gone after a, a false teaching, a heresy called Arianism. And he almost alone stood against these things. But he feared God. He did not fear man. And the Lord upheld him. And what you know, um, he, was, he prevailed. Although much of it happened after he passed on to glory, he prevailed. And we should have that same sense that he did, that we should fear not. We should have that great God confidence. We'll speak more of that in a bit. Well, there was affliction. There's now going to be blessing. And therefore, we should fear not. And to add to that, verse, or our, our fourth point is strengthen your hands. 
In verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. And then again in verse 13, the other part of that verse, do not fear, let your hands be strong. And I want us to understand that this thing, that, that two things go together. Fear and weak hands normally go together. That's the connection. Uh, fear makes us weak. That was in Nehemiah. Do you remember that situation? As the enemies were seeking to frighten the people so that the work would not go ahead, what does Nehemiah say? Nehemiah 6.9 they, these enemies, were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work and it will not be done. Now therefore, O oh God, strengthen my hands. You see, he's confident that he is in the right way. He knows that fear would sap him of that strength and take him away from the work and, and cause his hands to be weak. And he says, Lord, strengthen my hands. And again, we should have that confidence and that knowledge that if we are doing the Lord's work, we're doing what we're called to do, that we can rightly expect him to strengthen our hands. And I, I know, by the way, if, if that's what Sanballat the Horonite and the others were doing back then, if that was their strategy to bring fear upon the, God's people in order that their hands would be weak, what do you think Satan's doing now? The same, the same tempter, the same accuser, the same Satan who was inspiring these enemies of God before with his strategy, he's doing the same thing now. You think as Satan opposes God's work today, he tries to make us afraid. And there are always rumors, aren't there? Rumors of this kind and rumors of that kind. And it's all designed to make us afraid. And you know, you go through Nehemiah, there's rumor after rumor, and it never comes to anything. And in the end, Nehemiah is made to prevail. And we need to know that we should not be fearful. God himself can give us the strength to carry on. And the word of God to us is that our hands should be strong. And God says to his people, if you're walking the way of righteousness, then be strong. If you're, if you're walking down the way of sin, be afraid. If you're walking in the way of sin, your hands should be weak. And it will be a God's blessing if he keeps you from carrying out your wicked designs. But if you're walking in the way of truth and righteousness, make your hands strong. He's with you. Now, the specific issue here, of course, was to complete the work of rebuilding the temple. Verse 9, you who have been hearing in these days the words by the mouth of the prophets who spoke in the the day the foundation was laid that the temple might be built. It was no small work. It was a daunting enterprise, to say the least. But it was the work that God had given them to do. And as we said way back in in Deuteronomy and Joshua, what glory would come to God if if they were just a bunch of weaklings armed with with small sticks? What is that going to do if God can enable his people to conquer such an enemy? And how is God going to be glorified if the thing that he gives you to do is, is of no consequence? And you, if you come to the prayer meeting and you say, you know, I want to give thanks that I, I was able to slice the bread today. And, and you say, well, that, that doesn't seem very impressive. But if you say, I was able to parent children who in their various ways are difficult and present great challenges and to love them. If I was able to carry on in a job which I hate in which people seem to be opposed to me in various ways, if I was able to carry on when there are great enemies around me, even my own neighbors, those sort of things bring God great glory, you see, and that's why he brings them to us in the first place. Now, we should not think that, of course, this is going to happen on the mere strength of the people. That's not what we're saying. 
These things go together, you see. God is going to bless them. And the strength, and he says, strengthen your hands. It's, it's more like in the, the thought that you know that I'm going to bless this work. It will be built. This temple was going to happen, which is amazing beyond all thought. Again, amazing enough that it should be done in the days of Solomon. It is beyond amazing that it should be done to such a people in such a situation. It will be built because God is going to bless them in the work of their hands. As once he opposed them at every turn to get him, them to, to repent of sin. And he blocked their way. Almost, you remember how the, the wicked prophet, uh, Balaam, and going to, to the, this wicked king, Balak, and at every point he was being opposed. And even the donkey itself re- rebuked him. And so it was for those who are in sin that God is going to oppose you. Now, the, you know, the un, those who are not God's people, the, the, the sinners out in the world, they go their merry way. So don't think that you're going to get away with it if you're one of God's people. It won't happen like that for you. You will be opposed at every turn. But when you have turned from that and when you turn to the Lord and you are on his errand, though there will be challenges, though it's not going to happen overnight, that you can expect in the long run, over time, that God will bless you. And it's not going to, by the way, I, I should just say this, verse 6, is an interesting thing. Uh, thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, would also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. And, and, and the point is, that it's, it's no great thing for God to do these things. Let's make sure we understand that. That's the, the larger point of the sermon is building up God confidence. He wants to destroy confidence in ourselves. That's what pride is. It's confidence in ourselves. Destroy that. Get rid of it. But he wants to build up confidence in him. So he says, look, I can build this temple. That's, that's no problem for me. I'm not going to be amazed. I'm not going to be in awe of what I've done here. I could, I've created the whole universe for the very word of my power. So I know I can do this. And so it is with all of the things that God calls us to do. Well, fifthly and finally, he's going to bless the nations as well. Verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also where they're going to go. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. And God says he's going to make them to be a blessing. They, well, just think about how terrible the situation for the nations roundabout was in the time of this judgment. He had destroyed Jerusalem. The temple was gone. The people there were in great reproach, as uh, Nehemiah's brothers said in, in the beginning of that, that book. And there they are in Babylon in captivity. Who And if people are seeking the Lord, where are they going to go? Where are they going to go to the teaching priest to hear the word of God? None of these things existed. The darkness was incredibly great. But in God blessing his own people and building them up, they get to be a blessing again to the people. And, and he is going to stir them up and they are going to come to seek of his own people and to receive great blessing from them. And let me say, it is, of course, a great blessing to, be, to bless others, isn't it? It's good enough when the Lord blesses the work of your own hands and builds up your own situation and family and so forth. It's even greater to be a blessing to others. And he says, you will have that privilege, Israel. You used to be a curse, but now you're going to be a blessing to those around you. People are going to seek the Lord and they're going to know who to look for. They're going to know, have a place to go to. And you know, it's amazing to me. I, I could not 
uh, refrain from bringing up this particular verse because it is, you say, well, if the Lord can stir people up to seek the Lord from, from, why doesn't he just tell them? Why doesn't he just give his word? Well, it is to God's glory and it is according to his plan that he uses human instruments to speak to people, to bring them to salvation. And the most, by far, the most dramatic example of that is surely the conversion of Paul or Saul in Acts chapter 9. Let me see, show you what I mean. In Acts 9, 4, 6, Damascus Road, he, the vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ stops in his tracks. He falls on his face. He fell on the ground and heard a voice saying to him, saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Again, not the church, but me, because it's the same thing. It's his body. And he says, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Okay? He's, he's wanting for instructions. And you're expecting him to explain the gospel. But that's not what he does. He says, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. And he sends him to a man whom we don't hear much about after that, Ananias, some random disciple. And Ananias has the privilege of explaining the words of life to him. That is the point that the scales fall. That is the point that he understands the truth and puts his faith in it. After he hears it from this, this man of flesh, Ananias, he's, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to him in a vision. And he sends Paul to Ananias to hear the gospel. And that's what he does with us. He doesn't need us. But it is his express purpose to send people to us and us to them in order that he might speak the words of life to them. Well, those, those are the, the aspects, these four aspects of it. There was affliction, there will be blessing. Fear not and strengthen your hands and bless the nations. Now, there are so many applications that could be made, but first of all, I just say a word about reformation and revival because I want us to see that this is not an accident. When we call our new monthly prayer meetings for those for reformation and revival rather than just for revival, of course, in essence, that's where we want to get to, but the relationship has got to be right. First, there must be reformation, and then there is God's blessing. Now, I, I can tell you this, that in, with, if God's, God's people, uh, a couple of years before the Babylonian captivity, in the days of that wickedness, they could, they could pray until they were blue in the face for revival. And it, it ain't going to happen. It was not going to happen. The people, as they were in their wickedness, their immorality, all the sin that they had, the way that they worshipped was an abomination to God, all the false teachings that were there, the wickedness and the, the sloth of the priests and all the rest of these things. There was no chance that God was going to bless such a church. Reformation must happen first if there's going to be revival, if there's going to be blessing. And I want us to understand, by the way, that this happens at every level. It happens individually. We, of course we want to be blessed. And of course, that naturally our hearts are going to turn to, Lord, please give me the stuff and the things and the situation that I want. But we have to understand we put reformation first. And if there are besetting sins that you've been justifying, that you've been letting yourself off on, you've got to mortify them. You've got to put them to death. If there are elements of, of unbelief, you've got, to, you've got to repent of those things. 
You've got to reform, you see, and then God is going to bless. As a family, same thing. Been putting off daily family worship. Start now. Been putting off prayer. Been putting off really keeping the Sabbath and all those things. Start now. Reform as a church. For this church, for the denomination, for all the churches who still hold to Christ in this land, we need to turn away from every false thing, from every false doctrine, from methods that man has made up in the imaginations of his heart that the salesmen say that, that are going to be blessed, that the salesmen say that your church is going to become big and, and we're going to have lots of money and resources and all the rest of it. But God says, I'm not going to bless it. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to put my affirmation on these things. We need to turn from these things. There must be reformation and then there'll be, we pray, in God's own sovereign hand, revival. Secondly, I want us to have God confidence. That's the, the title of the sermon, and that is the main point. I hope I haven't strayed from it. The point is, please, don't be self-confident, but, but have great, supreme God confidence. You know, and, and what I'm saying is, if we've dealt with these things, I don't mean without exception. The people, they were not exception. Uh, over and over again, we get the sense that there were various things that were not quite right. Even here in Zechariah 8, it says, verse 17, Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor. Don't love a false oath, for these are things that I hate, says the Lord. He wasn't bringing them up idly. There must have been some such things among them, and he's reminding them. But in as much as they were biddable, in as much as they were teachable, in as much as they came to listen to the Lord and wanting to reform, then he says, I'm going to bless you. And he wanted them to have great confidence in his ability to do that. And I think that among ourselves, we should cultivate a supreme God confidence. We should walk on this earth as if we were immortal angels sent on God's mission on earth, knowing that nothing could possibly stand against us, nothing can harm us, nothing can prevent the completion of our God-given task for the time that he has allotted for us. There's no fear of man whatsoever but only a right fear of God. We should be supremely God-confident. No confidence in ourselves, but in God. You know, I I was listening to this um, show on the radio, and they were speaking of what it is that public schools grant, uh, you know, expensive public schools, and what, in essence, they offer, not necessarily a better education, sometimes that's the case, but in essence, what they offer is self-confidence. That's what you get. You, You are better than other people. When an Eden boy walks into a a building, he kind of surveys his situation, looks around and and says, I'm better than these people and I, I should run the place. And sometimes that's exactly what happens. But brothers and sisters, we're we're children of the living God. And we should have a supreme God confidence. We do not walk around at all and say that we're better. That is what he hates. That is what is not true. We walk around as, as the, the tax collector and saying, beating our breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But if we're in the way of righteousness and he has called us to something, he can, you can be sure that he can uphold you. And he will do great things. He is able to do great things through weak people. Through our prayers and through our very, very, sometimes pitiful efforts, he can do wonderful things. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but in the long run. So have great God confidence. Know that he's all-powerful. He is good. He keeps the promises that he makes to his people. 
And therefore, we are able to do that. And what it says in Hebrews 12, 28, again, you know, the situation in Hebrews is a lot of these people never saw the end of it in their lifetime. Okay, so don't get that confused. It doesn't happen today. These, the Hall of Fame of Faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11, they all, they died not having seen the thing that they were looking for. But what Hebrews 12, 28 reminds us is, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. That's it. You have this, we're going to receive the kingdom. We walk with his confidence and we walk, therefore, with reverence and godly fear. And I would say particularly we need to instill this God confidence in our children. The whole, you know what Satan is doing? Satan seeks to make us fearful and that is what he's doing with our children. He wants them to be fearful and particularly the fear of man. And we need to instill rather than that, wean them off of confidence in themselves, but give them great God confidence. Finally, I would say that we need to strengthen our hands in the work that God has given to us. Uh, We recognize when the Lord is disciplining us, we should recognize it. We should have very sensitive consciences. We should pray for that. Lord, show me if I'm going astray. And if the Lord is, if we're under his hand of discipline, we need to turn and repent. But if, if the Lord has brought us into a place of obedience and strengthen your hands, very often we, we are in, almost in despair. We are easily made to be, I don't know, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? We, it doesn't take much sometimes to get us discouraged. We're easily discouraged, it's true. I can say the same for myself, and I think I sometimes see it in, in us. And what the Lord, I think, is reminding us here is that we should not be discouraged, but rather that we should strengthen our hands all the more in the very difficult work that he gives us. And what it says, you know, in Hebrews 12, I keep coming back to Hebrews, but Hebrews 12, 11, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. This is what happened to the nation, but painful. Nevertheless, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And therefore, now here's after you've been trained by that, after you've been brought back, then what? Strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Do we have perfect strength in ourselves, whether in mind or body or anything? No. God says, strengthen your hands while you live, while he gives you breath to do the work that he calls you to do. Let's pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, you are righteous altogether, and all of your works are just and true. And Lord, when you discipline your people, you are just in doing it. We know, Lord, that you show great long-suffering and great patience and kindness, and you do not act without sufficient cause. And Lord, as we look at the story of how you brought this great discipline upon the whole nation, 70 years in exile, Lord, we are thankful that it brought about the peaceable fruit of righteousness and teachableness and humility. How we pray, Lord God, that if you have disciplined us, if you have corrected us, that we would not return to the ways of pride and self-sufficiency, but Lord God, that we would have a supreme God confidence, that we would not walk in dejection, that we would not be discouraged, but Lord, we would rejoice in your promises that you'll do good to us and bless our hands. 
How we pray, Lord God, that you would strengthen our hands for the, the week that lies ahead. How we pray, Lord, that you would enable us to do these difficult things, all to the glory of the everlasting God. We pray it in your name. Amen. Amen.